Welcome to Baseball Biz. I'm Mark Carpenter, host, and with me today is John Vampatella. He's author of The Forgotten Game, Game 5 of the 2004 LCS when the Yankees were facing Boston. John is also the Northeast Regional Director with Athletes in Action. He's a chess enthusiast and a lover of baseball. He's host of his own podcast, Voice and Viewpoint, with John Vampatella. Today, we have the pleasure of speaking with John about one of the most memorable games in baseball. You know, this game was a game that's going to determine if the New York Yankees were going to advance the World Series or if the Boston Red Sox would stay in for yet another game. Welcome, John. Hey, Mark. It's great to be with you. Uh, looking forward to talking some baseball with you today. Oh, man, it's great to have you here again. <laughs> but, oh, gosh, I got to tell you, brother, I, that's... I read the book and I, I absolutely loved it. Okay. Um, I was always, you know, sometimes how something's presented to you. You say, I don't know, but that sounds really good. Or I'm, I'm not sure. And the first thing I, I heard was John's going to go in here and tell me about each inning. And he's going to tell me about each pitch. Oh, geez. Why not read a box score? But no, this, this was exciting stuff because when you walk the reader through this, every pitch becomes pivotal. And with it, there's a story. As we go through this, you know, where I'm, I'm looking at it and we're talking about everything from an acquisition of a player to a history of what they've done, uh, whether it be Pedro Martinez or A-Rod or, you know, Jeter and some of the things that happened in their history to get to this game, to get through these teams. So I found it all very fascinating. And, you know, you, you share some of their insights, some of their opinions. So thank you, man. I love it. How'd you get involved with this? What, who, who said, John, baseball is a thing to look at. What, how'd it come into your life? Well, I, I've been a baseball fan since I was a kid. I, I've loved the sport. My dad was a big baseball fan, a big Yankee fan, as it were. I, I was born on Long Island. My, my dad was the son of an Italian immigrant, and he was a Yankee fan growing up. Uh, but when I was four, we moved to, we moved to Maine. And I, of course, I hadn't paid any attention to baseball when I was two and three, so by the time I came of age to start liking baseball, I was in Red Sox country. And uh, as a kid, you know, this is back in the 70s and uh, early 80s. You know, I couldn't I couldn't really get a national uh, sense of baseball because we didn't have ESPN back then. And we and there was no easy way to follow national sports. So everything was regional. But even today, in many respects, baseball is still a regional sport. But I would only be able to listen to Red Sox games on the radio. So I'd fall asleep at night listening to Red Sox games. Uh, and then in the morning when I would get up and I'd read the paper, of course, the major stories were about the Red Sox, not the Yankees. And so even though my dad was pulling me in the direction of the Yankees, kind of my environment and my friends and everything around me was pulling in the Red Sox direction. So I became a Red Sox fan. My first experience at, uh, at a ballpark was Fenway when I was a kid. And I remember that game like it was yesterday. And Mark, you know what it's like going into a, a, a ballpark for the first time, especially as a kid, right? It's it's an incredible moment. You 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 come come out of the tunnel from underneath the stadium, and and you see for the first time the stands. You see the green grass, and you know we're not talking like a high school field. We're talking like a major league ballpark, right, where everything's manicured perfectly, and and the brown dirt, and the crisp white lines, and the and the ball players warming up, and 
I see the green monster there. And it's honestly, I felt like this place is like a cathedral. It's, and I, you know, it was hard not to fall in love right away. And I remember that game, it, they beat the Seattle Mariners 10, five that day. And George Scott, does that name ring a bell with you? Oh yeah. Boomer, George Scott hit a grand slam. We were sitting in the left field seats. You know, you couldn't sit, they didn't have monster seats. So it was down the left field line and his home run sailed right past us. And, uh, it was, it was incredible. Right. So that's how I became a Red Sox fan. And I, you know, I did not know the pain I would endure uh, over the next several decades being a Red Sox fan uh, and all the ways they would torment my soul. Right. Uh, even though, you know, generations had experienced that being a Red Sox fan, but, but my dad and I always had this relationship. And so when this, when this game took place, uh, when this series took place in 2004 and then they won the world series, you know, obviously you, you knew it was, it was magical, right? It was, it was the culmination of everything that Red Sox fans had hoped for, for 86 years. Like, think about that. Like people have had lived, were born, had lived entire like long lives and had died never having seen the Red Sox win the world series. And so when they, when they finally won it, I remember my wife said to me, she said, is it, is it what you thought it would be? And I kind of looked at her and I was like, yeah, it really, it really is. As good as I thought it would be, you know, like the wait is over. But I, at that point, you know, I was, you know, I had, I wasn't eight, I'm still not 80 years old. So I don't know what it's like to have lived that long without experiencing it. So I, I think about all the Red Sox fans who finally got to experience a world series title after decades and decades of following them. So 2004 obviously holds a special place in my heart as a Red Sox fan. And it was a pretty important moment in baseball history. This particular game was, I think, the best game of the entire series. And I think at the same time, it's the game that even Red Sox fans have forgotten a lot about. So that's why I wanted to write about it, being a big baseball fan. And I just thought, uh, it's a good baseball story. It's oh, an yeah. even better Red Sox baseball story. Um, and so I just, I wanted to write about it. So I did. Well, it's a great book. And I'll remind folks again, it's the forgotten game, game five of 2004 ALCS. Boy, <laughs> I, I mean, you're talking about two powerhouse teams, you know, even today, if you're looking at the American league, who's going to be getting the wild card, guess who's there at the top. Yeah. Yankees and Boston blue Jays too, but these, these teams, they're monumental. They're legacies. They've they been part of baseball from the beginning, and their fan base has been there as well. So I understand the yearning to get to that, uh, to win that World Series and to see a team is formed. While, while you watch them through the entire season, once you're in postseason, I think everything's magnified by about 10. And you, know, you don't know what's going to happen. And this particular series, the Red Sox lost the first three games. Who comes back from that? You know, who comes back from it? Well, you guys did. And certainly that was a big part. Uh, what Mr. Ortiz came in and popped one there at the very end of the game in game four. And you guys were able to have a game five. But <laughs> we, we were talking once before about the length of these games. I think the game four was approximately about five hours long. And uh, what was that about 13 innings or 12 innings? I can't remember. 12 innings, 12 12 innings, innings yeah. 12 innings. And then you're going to game five. It's 14 innings. The manpower that it takes to, to last that long through a game. For one thing, 
what, what about these, the catchers? You know, you think about these guys on their knees the whole time. Uh, you think about what's called the third team, the, the umpires. And by the way, Joe West was there. <laughs> uh, yep. Joe West, one of the other, uh, another umpire. She went to had 50 years as umpires out there. I thought wow. he's, yeah, that's 2004. And Joe West is still with us. <laughs> yeah. Yep. He's, he's a legend uh, in many ways. Yep. For sure. Oh, brother. Yeah, no, it's you're you're right. The the endurance for these guys was was pretty incredible, and I know that that for all of them, right? It was a grueling for the fans. It was grueling, right? I mean, I remember you know these games, you know, didn't start till like eight o'clock at night, and so by the time they were done, it was past midnight. You know, people got to get up and work the next morning, you know. But it's like it's a it's a long, long time to be watching these games, and uh, they're so tense, right? Playoff baseball between the Yankees and the Red Sox is. There's nothing like it. You know, I, I get that the Dodgers and the Giants probably would, would put their rivalry in the same vein or Cubs and Cardinals. But for my money, Red Sox, Yankees, it doesn't get any better. When, when those two teams are going at it, it's, it's, uh, it's the top of the mountain in terms of uh, baseball tension. So you had this. It, it wasn't just that the games were long. They definitely were long, but the start times were later. Norm, a normal East Coast game is like a 7.05 or 7.07 or 7.10 start. These games weren't starting because of the networks. They weren't starting till after 8 o'clock, and they were going five, five and a half hours long. You know, it's, it's great. And you have the intensity of the playoff matchup, right, where your season could end if you make one mistake. So I think for fans, you know, these were exhausting, absolutely exhausting games. But as a player, like I'm trying to imagine being Jason Veritek or Jorge Posada for the Yankees, being behind the plate for hundreds of pitches for 12, 14 innings, night after night, where one mistake can lose you the game behind the plate. I think we don't give baseball players credit enough for being great athletes. I think when we think of great athletes, we think of basketball players, we think of track stars, Usain Bolt, we think of football players. And I don't think we give baseball players enough credit for being athletes. You know, you might look at a guy like, um, you know, Cecil Fielder, you know, and, and say, oh, that guy's not really an athlete or, or Prince Fielder's son, you know, and I think you know, these are big guys who look like they should be in a slow pitch softball league, but even they have to endure like a long season. They've got to do athletic things. And I think, you know, especially catchers, uh, are just unbelievable athletes, what they, what they can put their bodies through uh, and what Posada and Veritek put their bodies through the grueling nature of it was incredibly impressive to me. Yeah. That just, it kind of knocks me down to, to see somebody be able to achieve it. And the athleticism, yes, it has to be there. You're not going to be able to through, go through 162 regular season games, you know, and, and the grueling amount of time with some of these extra inning games, uh, if you if you don't have some kind of stamina and stamina and athleticism, I want to come back to the actual beginning of this game. And as we're seeing here, what was it in two? Oh, let's, actually, let's go back another year, two thousand and three. The manager for Boston Red Sox, it's a Grady Little, and who does he have as his pitcher? Pedro Martinez. And in a world of analytics, I think a lot of people probably would question what he did with Pedro. Can you, can you reflect back on that? Yeah. So in 2003, you know, Pedro Martinez, um, I make the case in the book that he, at his peak, there's never been a 
better pitcher in baseball than Pedro Martinez at his peak. You know, other players had longer careers, more productive careers, but I'm talking about when they're at their best, I don't think anyone's been as good as Pedro. I get that people would disagree, but I make, I think a pretty strong case in the book. But by the time 2003, 2004, especially came along, Pedro wasn't Pedro anymore. He was still great, but he wasn't quite the same. And there, there, he had reached a point in his career where a hundred pitches was kind of a watershed point for him during the course of a game where, where when he reached the hundred pitch mark, his effectiveness really tailed off. So go back to 2003, they're playing the Yankees in game seven of the ALCS and just the year before. And Pedro's cruising. He's uh, he's pitched seven great innings, but he had reached this kind of magical, you know, point. And we all thought, all the fans thought Pedro was done for the day. In fact, my dad called me that night. Uh, well, that inning, uh, being a Yankee fan, called me at the bottom of the eighth inning to congratulate me on the fact that the Red Sox had finally beaten the Yankees. And I was like, Dad, what are you crazy? Why are you calling me? This game is not over. He's like, Ah, Pedro's pitching great. And I'm like, This is Red Sox Yankees. You know better than to call me about that. So, anyway, so Grady Little has this choice as a manager: Do I pull Pedro? Do I do I keep him in? Well, he kept. Pedro in and the Yankees started to mount a rally and we kept waiting for Grady little to pull Pedro. Like after each Yankee got another hit, we're like, when is he going to pull Pedro? And then finally Jorge Posada knocks in the tying run. And as soon as he did that, I literally hung up on my dad. Like I didn't (laughs) even, I didn't like, I didn't even say goodbye. (laughs) Like, I'm just like, I can't deal with this anymore. Boom. Goodbye. So like, I just, I just hung up on my dad and, um, Sorry, Dad. I didn't. I, I don't. Didn't mean to be rude. If you're listening, and then finally they pulled. They pulled Pedro. But it was. We thought it was crazy. So his decision to leave Pedro in cost the Red Sox the game, a chance to go to the World Series, and it ultimately cost Grady Little the job. Right. So this is the Pedro Martinez, though. It's a diminished Pedro. It's it's no longer the great Pedro. It's a little bit of a diminished Pedro that gets on the mound for the for the start of Game Five in 2004. And so, you know, we can talk about analytics and pitch counts. And one of the key analytics that, that is involved in, in managing today is, uh, and you know, this is a Tampa Bay Ray fan that, that the, when, when a pitcher re- pitches to a lineup the third time through, they perform a lot worse. And so what teams are doing these days is they're pulling pitchers before they face a lineup the third time. That came back to bite Tampa pretty hard last year in game six. Blake Snell's pitching incredibly well and kind of out of the blue and his pitch count was low. Kevin Cash pulls him. Why? Well, we didn't want him to face the lineup the third time. And the Tampa Bay bullpen gives up the game and, and the series, right? The thought process makes sense, right? The numbers tell you that, that facing a, a lineup for the third time, we see diminished results as a, as a starting pitcher. And I think that drives a lot of baseball decision-making today, right? The Red Sox are deal with that. Alex Cora is in the same, same kind of think, thinking as a manager, but Grady little definitely was not thinking that back then he was thinking, this is my best pitcher. I'm going to pitch him. And I think Terry Francona was dealing with the same thing in game five because Pedro Martinez was reaching in, in the sixth inning. He was reaching that same pitch count. And so 
you know, we can talk about later on in the game a little bit later. I know you're focused on the first inning and Pedro starting, but, but this is the pitcher that, that, uh, that the Red Sox are throwing at Terry Francona is putting out there in game five. He knows that he's only got a certain amount of bullets. You know, he, he knows Pedro can't, unless he's thrown a perfect game that he's not going to be able to go nine innings, you know, eight innings. So he has to be thinking during the whole game at what, how long can I let Pedro go? At what point do I need to pull him? Uh, or can he give me a little more? So these are all the things that I'm sure were going through Francona's mind as game five started, especially given that he had a tired bullpen from the previous two games. So, you know, baseball, baseball managing is so fascinating. Uh, you know, and what I love about baseball, I think is that because the game's a slow game, you have time in between, you know, batters to analyze and to think this stuff out along with the manager, which is probably one reason why baseball managers get so second guessed all the time, you know? Well, yeah. And I, I was a little surprised thinking about Frank Conner because he was in an age of when analytics were starting to evolve. And I think he had a little bit more of a mindset of that than little did. And I think maybe that was one of the reasons the Red Sox brought him in, brought him in, but he, he still stayed, I think, with his gut. And, you know, you talked about the Rays and don't think that was necessarily the case. What's interesting, too, is because you say, okay, the lineup has already seen this guy two times, three times. They got him. But maybe not. And if you're on the mound, you want to keep pitching as long as you can. But if you look over in that bullpen, oh, really? Oh man, my mindset just went to I'm good killing it. I'm gonna get any every one of these guys to where to where it can drop right off. So there's a lot to be said to having faith in your player. And I, I sometimes see a pitching coach go out and talk to the pitcher, and he's like, Okay, I'm actually doing this so we can get a guy over the bullpen while you're not looking. I don't know. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> no, that definitely happens. And one of the things too is don't don't forget this. You know, if you look at the red, just take the Red Sox bullpen in 2004. Yeah. They had two guys who could throw 94 miles an hour. That was Mike Timlin and Alan Embry. I mean, their closer, Keith Falk, threw 86 miles an hour, right? And so their, their bullpen was full of guys who weren't really good enough to be starters. And that had, was what bullpens were for a really, really long time. You know, they'd gotten into some specialization with the left-handed only guys and the closers, but, but still – you know, the Red Sox had two guys who threw 94 miles an hour in the bullpen. You look at Tampa, Tampa's bullpen today, right? They got probably eight guys in the bullpen, and I bet every single one of them throws 97 or better, right? Every single one of them. And so bullpens now are real weapons, real weapons. So it's much more tempting to say, hey, if my starter only goes five, no big deal. I can, I can just trot out an endless parade of guys who are dominators. Yeah. You know, back then that wasn't the case, right? Back then a, a good bullpen probably had like three guys that you could say, these are the guys that I can rely on, but the rest, I don't know, you know? And so it was much more dangerous to go to the bullpen back then. And so I think analytics have, have changed things, but the nature of pitchers has, has changed things too. Well, and sometimes you see a pitcher as they get a little older, I mean, just like Pedro, maybe they have to get a little smarter and a little better control. And I think managers recognize that. But as long as we're talking about pitchers, let's talk about uh, who came in for on the 13th inning of the game. 
Mr. Wakefield. And this guy, he throws magic at the, you know, from the mound to the plate. He's got a knuckleball that not only can the uh, batter's not fine, but the catcher has a hard time too. And where he had had a uh, catcher who had worked really well with him, Mirabelli, I believe. Now, the guy who's been in here for 12 innings, Veritech, we're going to keep him in there instead of bringing in Mirabelli, who's really worked well on catching these knuckleballs. Because Veritech, what, I, I think three, four balls passed by him? He said that trying to catch a knuckleball was like trying to catch a fly with chopsticks. So, yeah, woof. I'm glad you put that in there, by the way. In the yeah. book. That was great. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Catching the knuckleball is not easy for sure. But did, were, were you surprised when you think back to that that they didn't bring Mirabilly in? Well, it's it's uh it's definitely one of those questions, right? It ended up working out for the Red Sox. So whatever works out is fine. You know, you know how baseball goes. You know, whatever decision you make, if it works, it's the right one. If it doesn't work, it's the wrong one. Uh, that was a really interesting situation. The Reds, the knuckleball is an incredibly hard pitch to throw. Um, you know, you, you're trying to generate a, a, a pitch with no spin. I know today's analytics talk about spin rate and everything, but that pitch you're trying to throw it with literally no spin at all. And that makes it move a ton in unpredictable ways, right? So the unpredictability in its movement is what makes it hard to hit. So like, you know, as a batter, you're, you know, you see the greatest hitters in the world looking silly against a good knuckleball, but the problem is it's also really hard to catch. And so there aren't many knuckleballers out there today because it's a really hard pitch to throw and master. Uh, But when there are knuckleball pitchers, usually they will have a special catcher just for that pitcher because catching it is so hard that you need one guy who's dedicated to learning the art of catching the knuckleball. I think it was uh, Bob Euchre who, who once said that the best way to deal with a knuckleball is just let it go past you, you know, up and go pick it up from the backstop. Like that's basically <laughs> how he would handle it. And so, you know, that's what Veritech was facing. Uh, Wakefield came in actually in the, in the 12th inning and he had a pretty seamless 12th inning, uh, and so out for the 13th, Wakefield came and then the knuckleball started going haywire. Right. And he even started the inning with a strikeout plus, a, a, I guess it was a pass ball, wild pitch uh, that that allowed the the runner uh, Ruben Sierra to get on first base. And that started the, the Yankee rally that inning. And if you're great, if you're not great, little, if you're Terry Francona, you're thinking to yourself, do I bring in uh, Doug Mirabelli, right. Who has a better chance of catching him successfully or do I keep Veritek in the game? And I don't know the entire calculus that Francona was working with, but I, I'm of the belief that he kept Veritek in because Veritek was a much better hitter. And in that particular point in the game, they needed his bat to try to win it in the bottom of the inning. And so he was willing to live with uh, really – crazy possibilities with Veritech behind the plate. And he did allow three, three pitches to go by him for pass balls. And he allowed several others to get by him. They just didn't get by him far enough for runners to advance. So it could have easily been six pass balls in that yeah. inning. Wow. And so it, it was, um, I think I've, I've said to people, it is that inning was the most white knuckle of a ride that I've ever been on as a baseball fan, just, you know, watching, Every pitch be an adventure for Veritech. You know, you could just picture him behind the plate, like 
sweating profusely because not because of the heat, but because of the intensity of the situation and the nerves that poor guy must've been feeling. But at the end of the day, all's well that ends well. And, and the Yankees didn't score. So I guess it was the right call to keep Veritech in there. You walk us through every inning in the, in the book. And I love that by the way, the way you break it all down, but I got to tell you when I got to inning 13, I was cringing. I was like, oh my gosh. I felt like that fan on the edge of my seat, you know, digging my fingers into the table, whatever in front of me. And I was like, oh my gosh, oh my gosh. You 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 delivered that, by the way, in inning 13. You did throughout the entire book, but on that one, uh, especially I was digging, like I said, digging in. So that was a great story and uh, a great uh, pitching. Uh, Tim Wakefield, like you said, he was in the 12th and the 13th inning was just amazing to me. So Thank you for that. <laughs> yeah, sure. It was, it, you know, funny because even watching it again, you know, in order to write the book, I had to watch the, the game about a dozen times. And of course, as a Red Sox fan, it never got old. But, but that inning never failed to be incredibly, even though I knew the outcome, it never failed to be incredibly intense. You know, and, and that's when you know a, a situation is truly gripping, when you know what's going to happen and you're still feeling your heart pounding because you're like, Oh my gosh, what could go wrong? Like, like, wait, I know what happens here. Why am I getting so tense? But it just is the way that inning was. And in real time, Oh my goodness. It was, it was unbelievable. Right. To, to watch that happen. I know what one of the bats late in the game and Ortiz was up there. I think one of the, one of the announcers said, will they run out of baseballs? You talk about a long game. Yeah. What's going to be, what's going to be next? I'll briefly state that yes, Indeed, Boston did win the World Series that year. And they only came from a team that came back after being down three games. And this came from a lot of talent. And I think Boston was kind of on a tight pocketbook, too. You're looking at, though, bringing in talent like David Ortiz, who was, I guess, a lot of people weren't paying a whole lot of attention to. But you know, Theo Epstein got him for $1.65 million for his first year with the Red Sox, a one-year contract. And looking at uh, Ramirez, too, uh, see, he was he was undervalued. I think in your book you talk about how Lasorda and the Dodgers looked at him and said, uh, you know, early on in his career. So while while one is later in the career, one's brand new. There is just talent and upon talent, you know, with the Red Sox. If you look at sorry to interrupt, if you look at those two rosters, they were lo- both teams were were loaded, right? Yeah. So there are four guys. All right. So trivia question for you. There are four guys who played in that game that are in the baseball hall of fame. Can you name all four? Let's see. Martinez. Uh, is, I don't know if Sheffield's in yet. No, uh, of course, Jeter. Yep. That's mm, two. Mm, 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 mm. Uh, Put you on the spot here, Mark. Yeah, no brother. Thank you. I love you for it. <laughs> uh, no, you know what? I'm, I'm drawing a blank. Obviously I don't, hey, Erod's not there. No, nope. uh, Mariano Rivera. Uh, three. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. And the fourth one is the one that surprises people because you don't think of him as a Hall of Famer, but but Mike Messina, right, is, a four, is the fourth one, right? But think about the guys in that game who are not in the Hall of Fame. Now, some will never be and some might someday be, but, but you're talking about Gary Sheffield, mm-hmm. Alex Rodriguez, Manny Ramirez, Kurt Schilling. Like, these are great, great all-time players who some of them aren't going to sniff the Hall of Fame for various reasons, right? And and the biggest reason, I think, for all of those guys that I listed is the steroid issue. 
but still they were still great players. Right. Yeah. And, and so those teams were just incredibly loaded with, with top end elite talent. So it was literally, it was Frazier Ali. It was, it was two heavyweights like at their peak. Don't forget the Yankees had just come off, you know, a world series appearance in 2003 and they had won four recent world series. So they were still a juggernaut and, you know, it was like two Titans going at it. It, it was, it was the height of, I don't know. I know I'm biased, but it was the height of, of baseball to see these two teams go at it for two years in a row. Uh, it, it's hard to get better than that. I think we're in a very good time right now in baseball to be able to watch some very talented players. But during this time, it, I think this was critical and a pivotal point for players overall and certainly between the Yankees and the Boston Red Sox. If I look today, it's really easy to say, okay, who are they? If I look across the hallway and say, oh, yeah, Shohei Otani. Uh, but uh, if you come back in a little closer and say, well, who do we have? Garrett Cove, Yankees. Okay, it's easy enough. And if I look to the Red Sox, am I going to go to Chris Sale? Or am I going to go with somebody else? For the superstar label on Boston, I would say it's well sale. Um, but you know, he's still kind of working his way back from yeah. major, major elbow surgery. Um, I would say Xander Bogarts is one of the best shortstops in the game. And then Rafael Devers, um, you know, Ooh. third base, uh, you know, dynamic young hitter, um, incredibly talented. Um, but yeah, the Red Sox do seem a little more anonymous this year than in years past. Uh, you know, Red Sox fans would certainly know who, the, who the, but you know, when you have Kike Hernandez leading the way and you've got Bobby Dahlbeck is a name that most baseball fans don't even know about. He's been incredible the last month and a half uh, for Boston. And he's essentially a rookie uh, that didn't have a, you know, great pedigree. You know, he wasn't like somebody that was on baseball America's top, you know, hundred prospects to watch. Right. So, so they really, and they, if you look at their bullpen, they've got a lot of no name guys, in the bullpen, when I say no name, that doesn't diminish their importance or their value. It's just that people haven't really heard of these guys. So uh, this isn't a typical Red Sox team, at least compared to their some of the teams that have won in the past. But we, I agree with you. We are in a great time. There's so much wonderful baseball talent out there. Uh, and it's fun as a baseball fan to see some of these guys. I'm mean, the Blue Jays. You know, I don't like them because they're, they're rivals in our division. But they have some incredible young talent that you can't help, but enjoy watching play oh, yeah. the game. You know, it's difficult. I, I was watching last night playing the race. <laughs> it's like, Oh my gosh, it, it's great to see the talent, but do that somewhere else. <laughs> right. Right. Go, go to San Diego. That'd be oh, great. Right. Right. Yeah. No, well, our, our teams, I mean, the AL East is brutally, brutally tough, you know? Um, and I wouldn't mind it if, if uh, you guys knocked off, Toronto a couple of times this week, that would be, that would be helpful for the Red Sox, but uh, you know, it's, it, it's, it's, uh, it's really fun, really fun to see baseball back with, with fans in the stands and to see the energy and to see the young talent. Uh, it, it's a good, it's a good time to be a baseball fan uh, in my view, not that there's ever been a bad time, but it's uh, it's uh, it's especially good, you know, watching guys like Otani play is just, it's, a, you know, what some of these guys are doing is, is mind boggling and uh, it's really, really fun. Well, I tell you, John, I said, I, I'm loving it now. I think most baseball fans are. And while we've been talking a little bit about what's going on today, I want to remind folks that they should look to the past. You can't understand the future and the strategy you need to deploy sometimes 
without looking to the past. And your book, The Forgotten Game, Game 5, the 2004 American League Championship Series for Yankees at Red Sox, (laughs) is a fantastic book. I enjoyed every page of it, and I think anybody else who gets the opportunity to read it will. Also, they can uh, find you your podcast as well. What else? Uh, where else can they find your book? I mean, obviously, like Amazon and such. Uh, is it? Yep, you can find it on Amazon, or you can go to my webpage, johnvampatella.com. Uh, my name is spelled just like it sounds, Vampatella. So, johnvampatella.com, and you can look for it there um, and see what other projects we've been working on. So, it's uh, yeah, it it was a blast to write. It's, it's hard, you know, as a baseball fan, I could talk baseball all day. Mark, I wish your podcast was four hours and we could just, uh, I have no <laughs> doubt, we could just, you know, spend all day talking about this game, this book, or what's going on in baseball today or whatever. It's, it's, a, it's a great sport. And what I've always loved about baseball, it's a great, it's a great sport for fans to talk about. I think it's one reason why um, I've, I've followed baseball as closely as I have over the years. It's just an incredibly enjoyable game. And it's easy to analyze from the standpoint of it's, it's kind of built, if you will, for people to talk about it, even watching a game as it's happening live, right? There's enough time in between pitches. So you can sit there and you can talk about the positioning of the fielders, or I wonder what he's going to throw him now, or, and other sports like basketball, the game is so fast paced. There's not really time for that conversation to happen during the course of a game, but baseball it's, it's relaxed and, you get to have that. So it's, it's really designed for a wonderful fan experience and, and really for post-game analysis. Like, why did they bring in this guy here? And why did they make that move there? And so it's a, it's a great sport to be a fan of. And um, that's one reason why the, the book was so great to write, because I'm just diving into baseball stuff. I mean, how fun is, how fun is that, right? Just talking, whether it's specifically this game or whether I'm talking about the value of the bunt or expected runs and some of the analytic stuff I get into, or some of the stories behind the players and the A-Rod trade, you know, that happened and then didn't happen to Boston, you know, like that stuff is so fun to talk about. It's so interesting. Um, And those kind of things shape organizations and and shape the history of baseball. And, and I would certainly recommend that part of the book as well. The whole thing with A-Rod in Boston was like, what? So I'm not going to give any more up on that. Uh, there's a lot of little nuggets like that all through the book and you will find it as enjoyable as I did. I I have no doubt the forgotten game again by John Vampatella game five, 2004 American league championship Yankees and Red Sox. Oh man. But John, I can't thank you enough for joining us here today and want to congratulate you again on a a great book. And I can't uh, wait to talk with you again sometime. Hey, Mark, anytime you want to talk baseball, I am happy to. I appreciate you and I appreciate the time. Thanks. All right, John. We take care, buddy. All right. You got it. I want to thank you all again for joining us today on Baseball Biz. And just remember, you can find me, Mark, on Twitter at TheBaseballBiz. You can also find us on all the podcast directories, Stitcher, Spotify, Google.Podcast, iHeartRadio. You name it, we're there. So thanks again, everybody. We look forward to to talking with you again real soon.